This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the Coast and Country download from the BBC. You can find the terms and conditions on our website at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. Today, you can hear Open Country. Well, I could be standing in an ancient Greek amphitheatre looking out over the architecture to the blue, the true blue of the Mediterranean on a beautiful sunny day, but as it turns out for this week's Open Country, I haven't had to go half that far. I'm actually in Cornwall, the far west of Cornwall, about three miles from Land's End. I'm in the Minnock Theatre, a theatre with tiered seating, semicircular, looking down onto a stage which has as its backdrop the Atlantic Ocean. Right, here we are. Lovely to see you all. I see you brought the weather with you. It was the vision of a woman called Rowena Cade who started working on it in the early 30s and continued to do so until she died in the 1980s. Now, she was helped by her gardener, Billy Rawlings, for many, many years. And the reason I'm here is to meet Mark Harrenden, who's a local storyteller, and he's written a monologue about Billy Rawlings' involvement in the making of this extraordinary outdoor theatre. I'm Billy Rawlings, and I was gardener to Miss Kane. I was only taken on for three weeks. Forty years later, I'm still here. So she brings me down here one day, down to where we are now on the side of the cliff. Very different it was then, yes, yes. It was all furs and bramble and fern, all falling away to a fifty-foot drop, right down into the zone below, where the sea come boiling in. Billy! Mark, that was fantastic. I really enjoyed oh, it. You. What a great performance. <laughs> fascinating. Well, it, it's, it's somebody that really had almost been forgotten about, I suppose. Everybody's aware of Rowena Cade and how she built the theatre at Minnock. But the story of her gardener was one that the Minnock wanted to pursue a little more. And so uh, they asked me to go and interview his daughter, who's uh, now in her 90s. And uh, all of what you've heard today has really come from that kind of research. Well, it gives a great insight into the... The work, the, well, the imagination to start yes. with, to see what this could be. I mean, she was extraordinary for seeing that, but the, the sheer physical labour of carving out the granite rock, making the stage, seeing what, what it could be, and then, and then making that happen. I mean, they did that together, I suppose, and they had a, a great commitment to it. Didn't yes, they? absolutely. And to think that they did the, the first part of that, the major work was done over one winter, when all of that side of a cliff that you see there was pulled down between them and the, the reinforcing wall was put up in tremendously bad conditions, really. Yes, I mean, today we're so lucky. It's a oh, beautiful, yes. beautiful oh, yes. spring day today. Oh, yes, anything. Yes, it's still, it's absolutely gorgeous, but I, I would imagine, you know, in the harshness of winter with the rain and the winds whipping around here... Absolutely. ..you know, to also be trying to lug granite about and split rock, I mean, it's extraordinary. Yes, and I would imagine in, in that first winter, he probably... Billy Rawlings probably didn't say a great deal to her about what he thought, <laughs> unlike later on when he probably, probably did. But I think he saw just what a, a vision it was as well. It's an interesting, I suppose, aspect of, of the relationship between people living here and this coast, isn't it? In that 
she could see the potential here. She could, yes. she could, and Billy could see that the shape was here to be able to do it. That there was a slope where an audience could sit. That there was the potential, you know, for a flat stage and that sort of thing. In a sense, the blueprint was here, but achieving it that required human beings to to actually yes, take control absolutely. and shape it. Yes, and of course, what she was using there was a kind of inherited use of techniques which had been passed down for hundreds and hundreds of years. He wasn't a, a, a miner, he wasn't a quarryman, he wasn't a farmer, but those techniques of working stone had been passed down, I suppose, for centuries. I love the idea, though, that it was almost the landscape that suggested this to her in the first place, if she was looking and seeing these huge granite rocks in the cliff face as, as wings for her theatre. Yes, yeah. yeah. No, it's, the it's, idea came from the landscape in the first place. Yes, it was kind of suggested, I think, to her. And what does it mean for people who live around here now, the Menek Theatre? I think people see it as a kind of testament to Rowena Cade, really, particularly, you know, this idea that a woman of that age, she was 38 when she first had the idea for the theatre and she worked here until she was 90, still, still working away at it. I think people admire that and they see it as a triumph of the human spirit, really. There's such a romance about this place, isn't there? If you knew nothing about how it had come about, just to stand here to look up at the tiered seating, standing here as we are on the stage with our back yes. to the sea pillars behind us framing the sea as, as if we turn and, and look out the romance is here when you find out about the backstory about the ambition and the the work ethic that went into it over sh such a short space of time i mean that puts the bow on it doesn't it yes, in terms it of the romance of this oh absolutely yes because in, in a sense the romance is made stone then isn't it in a way it's transformed into something physical i mean when you look up here and you see the names of all the plays in, inscribed in the seats. In a sense, you've got the work of men here on one side of us, and when we turn around, the work of nature on the other side, you know, with the sea behind us all the time. It's tremendous. Yeah, I suppose from that point of view, it's almost as if Rowena Cage and Billy Rawlings are part of this landscape now, aren't they? They're, they're almost imprinted on this, on this very landscape. Yes, yes, absolutely. I feel as if I've stepped back in time, six, seven decades standing here. I can see all sorts of equipment in front of me, telegraph machines, ticker tape machines, old manual typewriters. I'm here in the Porthcurno Telegraph Museum, and from the top of the cliff in the Minak Theatre, if you had been able to come down steps that have been cut into the rock face, would have reached a beautiful secluded beach with rock, heavy rock on either side, and if we'd followed up through the valley we'd have ended up here, exactly where we are at the Porthcurno Museum. And with me is Henrietta Boex, who's the project director here. This is a real treasure trove. Absolutely. Well, you know, you've explained the little cove and the beauty of the little cove. What you can't see on that little cove are the 14 cables that go from this little cove all over, stretched out under the sea to places all over the world, Bombay, Newfoundland, Carcavelas, you name it. These communications originally came into an Edwardian uh, cable station, but when the war came along, that was so critical, these communications, the War Office decided to tunnel into the granite cliffs here and to put all the machinery underground. You can hear the machinery in the background. This is original 1920s working equipment, so this is the actual equipment that would have been in here. I can't stress how important this valley was to British communications. Between 1870 and 1900, they laid hundreds of thousands of miles of cable under the sea 
and it changed the way the world worked. It changed the way trade was done. You know, you could get a message. It used to take six weeks to get a message from India back to Falmouth, the Falmouth packet. That went from six weeks to ten minutes. Wow. It's amazing. You know, this was something that was very important for trade, and people knew that they could get one up on other merchants. So it was very much a business thing originally, very important. And why here? Why site it here at Porthcurno? It was originally going to be sited in Falmouth because, of course, they were thinking the Falmouth packet came into Falmouth and therefore they would go out of Falmouth. But, of course, it's undersea cable. And undersea cable can get very easily snagged by anchors. So they then worked their way around the coast until they found this cove, which is due south. You can go due south from here, across the Bay of Biscay, down to Spain, across Spain, through the Med, and so on and so forth. Well, we've just stepped outside into the sunshine and I'm looking up. The whiteness of the museum, actually, is, is blinding in this uh, sunlight. It's a, it's a flat building, two storeys with uh, big sash windows and there's a very strange sound, lovely bird song, Henrietta, but there's something else that I'm, I'm picking up, that, that kind of high-pitched, almost a whining sound or high-pitched tone. What is that? Yeah, well, that's a sound sculpture and it's actually... At, at, the speaker is actually attached to an original... 1920s copper cable that goes under the sea that went to Vigo in Spain and these are it's picking up electrical signals under the sea and this is what you're hearing here so these are the sounds of electrical signals that that cable is still picking up under the sea correct because it has a copper core this is boggling my mind I know it's really bizarre isn't it but actually you were talking about this white building behind you the original five bay in the centre, which is the original Edwardian building, you find those all over the world. Exactly the same building, they just pop them. It was a like instant mix, you know, you, you just put up one of those. If you wanted a cable station, that's what it looked like. That's what it, and, was and you the, find them all over I the world. See. You find them in Australia, you find them in South Africa, you find them in South America. And is this the model for them? Was this, this is one the of the, This is, is the it? one? This is the one. This is the, so it's, not, yeah, just, in, it's in, not just the cables that got sent no, no, all no, around no, the world, yeah. the architecture well, did as well. Well, and the people. Yeah and particularly the people. I mean, this is the Silicon Valley of the 1870s. People came here, the brightest people in the UK came here to train as telegraph engineers. They were then sent to sit on islands in the middle of nowhere where they would, the cable would come and where they had to boost the signal in order to send it on its next section. It's an extraordinary story. These men were trained as doctors, dentists. They had to be able to do almost everything because they went to the most remote locations they were phenomenal of course it wasn't just uk people who came here to train because once they had trained here and then they went out to let's say santa Elena, and they sat on the rock and basically then they would train people in santa Elena, who then got sent back here to do further training so this between um, 1900 and 1970 was one of the most multicultural valleys in the world And here we are at the cable hut, and I can see within it there are pipes. Cables. Uh, sorry, yes, <laughs> cables coming up. They, yeah, they, they look like pipes, don't they? But you're, you're quite right, they contain cables. They're labelled Gibraltar 2, I can see. I can see one that says Vigo. What am I looking at? Well, this is where the cables came in from all over the world. So the one that you're looking at there that says Vigo is the one, actually, that the sound sculpture is attached to that went all the way from here to Vigo and carried all that traffic. It then goes from here up to the cable station. So, I mean, actually, if you look around you, quite often you'll see some exposed cables. This winter, 
because it was so stormy, most of the sand on the beach got washed away, and then suddenly there they were. There were all these cables exposed. It's extraordinary. They're still there under the beach. They just don't carry any traffic anymore, but they're still all there. And to listen to the the quietness of this with the birdsong in the background, and to, to imagine how frantically busy they must have been when they were in use, the... the the messages going to and fro. I think and there's the something, it's, it's a phenomenal, I can't, I've got it somewhere, and it's something like 75 million characters were sent in three years of the war. And do you ever, when you look out at the landscape here, look down the valley towards the beach, I mean, do you ever reflect on how the landscape and the human beings who've taken advantage of, I suppose, all its natural features, about how they've kind of interacted over the generations? There there was nothing, nothing. We have a map of this valley in 1870. There was nothing here. There was one farmhouse up the top, and that was it. And you just think about that. You think how bleak and barren it must have been. And the idea that these men had the vision that they would take a valley like this, change its shape, change its purpose put it to their own purpose, if you see what I mean, I think is, is the most fascinating thing. Well, we haven't come far from the museum, less than a mile in fact, but we're up now on a rocky headland overlooking the, the very blue and very still Atlantic Ocean. I'm with John Chapel, a long-time... Uh, well, in fact, you were born here. I was going to say long-time resident, John. I'll That's say right. it's a long time. It's all your life, isn't it, really? John Chapel is here. All my here. life so far. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Uh, just tell me a bit about where we are, John. Well, we're, we're actually on Trine Dinus now, which contains and leads to the Logan Rock. Yes, because this is a promontory fort jutting out into the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, and we, we're just standing between the first of the, uh, the fort buttresses and we're looking at the size of it and just imagine how anybody might set about building a construction like that in, in say, it's Iron Age, so, say, 500 BC, something like that. And, John, would we have just started to walk into the site of, of, of the fort here? Because if I turn to, with my backs to the structures that we've just been talking about and look out towards the sea, this is a, a headland, isn't it, that kind of emerges from the coastline here and just comes to a point out, pointing right that's out right. into that, the Atlantic. I think that's the definition of a promontory fort. They made a fortress that they could defend from the narrowest possible angle. It could only be attacked from the, from the land on the narrow neck of land. So. And what they've done here is is they've used the landscape then, haven't they? they they've seen yeah. how easy this would be to defend in many ways because there's only one possible rampart for attacking forces to come yeah. up and so they've thought this is a likely spot for us if we need to make a, a last well, stand sort of thing. Until very recently, really, you had to work with the land. It's only the very recent years with mechanical devices when we've been able to force the issue. Prior to that, then everything had to be done working with the land, taking advantage of the natural structures. Well, if we go further out onto this headland, John, we get to another fascinating part of this coastline, don't we? And one around which there's lots of of local stories and and lots of fascinating history. It's Logan Rock. That's right. Logan Rock forms the central part of the promontory. And if we move on now, we'll come to it very shortly. John, you've got us standing underneath Logan Rock now. And I must confess, when we were standing further inland on the promontory and you said I'll take you out there I was thinking how is he going to get us out there well you've done it but I'm a bit out of puff because it's quite a clamber over the rocks of the promontory isn't it it is a bit of a clamber but it's worth it for the view oh definitely and just the magnificence of it well we're standing in front of a very weather-beaten sign which has been screwed in 
uh, to the, the cliff face here, the Logan Rock, and then there's an arrow pointing up directly upwards. And no lie, there is Logan Rock just sitting on top, slightly jutting out. There's a gap between the bottom of the rock on this side and the cliff face itself, and presumably that's part of the, the thing that makes it a... A rocking stone. That's right. Logan comes from logging, we think, and logging for rocking stone. And there are a number of logging stones around West Penwith. When I was a youngster, it certainly rocked well. It hasn't rocked as well the last time I was up there. That may be, for a stupid expression, lack of use. Little, little fine bits of gravel blown into it will stop it rocking. Maybe that's what it is, I don't know. It's an extraordinary natural phenomenon, isn't it? A granite rocking stone of that size. Yes, but I, it comes about because of the, the natural decay and weathering process of the granite. If you just where we're, we're now, you see a number of rocks around. You look at that one up there, for instance, you, know, you can see that, that that is the natural weathering process of granite and it, it lends itself to producing every so often a rocking stone. This is the biggest one I know of, but there are others around. So tell me the story of the rock then. How important is Logan Rock to people around here? It was always a tourist attraction way back into the early 1800s. It must have been because there was such a furore when it was dislodged by Lieutenant Goldsmith. Yes, tell me about that. Why did he decide that he'd bring some of the seamen under his command, he was a, a naval officer, and try to get them to dislodge Logan Rock? Well, we don't know the reasons why. We can, we can speculate a group of naval guys on a night out, who knows, but they dislodged it. And because it was a tourist attraction, even back in those days, uh, this is the early 1800s, it was dislodged and wouldn't rock anymore. Lieutenant Goldsmith was ordered to replace it. There's a pub nearby, isn't there, the Logan Rock the Logan Inn? Rock, yeah. And they've got uh, pictures of the scaffolding that had That's been right. e- erected. And, and it looks from the pictures as if some of the scaffolding, at least, was where we're standing now. It is, yeah. yeah. To try and get it back in place yeah. because of the uproar that yeah. they'd caused. I've also seen the invoice in the Logan Rock Inn nearby yeah. That, yeah. that really gives you a, a sense of the sheer manpower involved in trying to put it back because it's very, very detailed. It lists each man involved, how many days they were employed for, how much they cost, and more than £130, which was a fortune back then. That's right. When you see the replacement bill where it itemises every item from a plank of wood to a few pints of beer for the men, it gives you an insight to all sorts of aspects of life, you know, the prices of stuff then what people were doing, how many people were available. You would struggle to, to commandeer 50 men locally now. There are not 50 fit and able guys around. This is the Logan Lady on the promontory of Logan Rock itself. The Logan Lady is not by any means as well known, but is quite a significant rocking stone. You can see that it stands about 12 or 15 feet tall and will move quite considerably. Go on, go on, John, then. Show me. Give her a push and let's see. Let's see what happens. You're giving her a good old heave there, but she's, she's not cooperating just at the moment. <laughs> Typical woman. I would-